0: So, as we have returned this morning to um, our studies in the letter to the Hebrews, we've come to what is the climax of the letter, to what the writer has been leading us to, and is kind of the Everest in the middle of this range of Himalayas, which this letter is. And in verses 1 to 5 of Hebrews 8, uh, the writer summarizes everything that's gone before, as he says. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. He's summing up, but then within these few verses, verses 1 to 5, he also sows a a few thoughts about what he's going to develop later in the letter. And this is one of his favorite devices, by the way. Uh, He says something which maybe summarizes, but he says a few more things that make it easier for him to talk about it later. So he speaks here about this being the sum we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the majesty uh, of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, uh, and so on. And then he talks about serving unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, uh, uh, and then the pattern shown on the mount. And some of that is going to come up in chapters nine and 10. But now we come to verse 6, and I want to particularly take it from verse 6 at this point, which is a central verse, really, to this chapter. But now hath he, that is Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. You'll notice that there are three things here mentioned. That Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, has a more excellent ministry. That he, secondly, is the mediator of a better covenant. And thirdly, that this covenant has been established upon better promises. Now, as he has used these words, clearly the words are comparative. He is comparing what Christ is the minister and mediator of with something Else. And that something else is the old covenant, the covenant given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And we have perhaps one of the shortest expressions of that covenant in Exodus 19. The covenant, the old covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, is repeated quite a few times in the Pentateuch. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is actually just one long covenant treaty, as it were. The whole book is structured to be like an ancient Near Eastern covenant. Just like in the New Testament, we understand a letter, we're familiar with letters, with a greeting and with a, an ending and so on. And it, and it resonates with us. So in the days when Moses spoke, the covenant, arrangement and treaty would resonate with the peoples of the ancient Near East who are used to having different feudal overlords and there was violence and there was warfare and there was change, but they were used to this kind of arrangement. Well, although that helps us, that does help us uh, to, to know that. But to them, that was just uh, natural as it were. And one of the shortest expressions of the Old Covenant is found in Exodus 19 and verses 4 to 6. And you'll notice the same kind of structure. It starts with a a preamble, with a historic statement as to what the overruling Lord has done for the people. In this case, God himself is the overruling Lord. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You've seen how I rescued you from Egypt. And then there is the stipulations, the the requirements of the covenant. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant. And we know in Exodus twenty that that uh, what what has to be obeyed is spelt out in the Ten Commandments. Um, And then in the following chapters, those commandments are detailed out in particular life situations within the Old Covenant community of Israel. So there's firstly the historic statement, and then there is the requirement of obedience, and then there are threatenings and blessings. Threatenings if you disobey it, blessings if you keep it. Well, in this case, the threatenings are not stated but they are implied by the fact that the blessings are only for those who keep his covenant then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the earth for all the earth is mine and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel and then as the people say we will do this God approaches in a thick cloud. There's a terrifying sense of the presence and the reality of the holy God. And there are thunderings and lightnings in the mountain and the voice that's so loud that they beg for it uh, to to be quieter. Because they are a sinful people. And although God hasn't spelt out that the results of disobedience... Will be that they will be rejected. It's quite clear from what is being said here in the rest of this covenant statement. Now, one thing you see is never mentioned in this covenant interaction. One thing's never mentioned. The statement of the people, we will keep it, we will do it. All that the Lord has spoken us, we will do. Is just their affirmation. <clears throat> There's no guarantee that they're going to keep it. And they don't. By and large, they don't. And uh, you have 40 years later and a million carcasses in the wilderness to prove that they haven't kept that covenant, by and large, although there is a remnant according to an election of grace. So that's the old covenant now, it's, a, it's full of God's mercy because God has rescued them from Egypt and God is watching over them. In, even in the desert, even in their wanderings, he's watching over them. And even though many of them will die in the desert, he's still going to bring a small number into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb, and then the children of those who rebelled. And he's still eventually going to bring a, a seed, an elect seed, out of Israel. But that's the old covenant. But you see, God says this about this new covenant that Christ has come to bring. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Let's look firstly at the fact that it is a better covenant, this new covenant. Why is it better? Well, firstly, because it's to do more with the inward heart than with the outward body. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. Under the old covenant, the law of God was on the ten in in the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone. It was external. It was out there. This is what you've got to do. It was an external force, a terrifying force, but it didn't guarantee obedience. In fact, it seemed to make the people worse. Somehow they seemed to just go ahead and disobey it even more when they heard that law. You shall have no other gods before me. And what do they do? They build the golden calf and worship it. That was an outward law. Yes, it restrained some sin and vice and wickedness, but it did did not guarantee inward obedience. But now under this new covenant that the Lord Jesus brings, I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them in their hearts. If you're a Christian... That is the covenant that you are under. Yes, God's law is out there. God's law is in the scripture. We need to hear it. We need to be always uh, informed about it and reminded of it and blessed by it. But there's also within us a motive to keep it. The Holy Spirit inwardly dwelling within us. Secondly, it's a better covenant because it is faultless. It's faultless. In verse 7, he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there should no place have been sought for the second covenant, that is. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now there's some uncertainty about the translation in verse 8. Finding fault with them or finding fault with it. It doesn't make a lot of difference. If it's finding fault with them, it means finding fault with the people of Israel in the days of Moses who disobeyed the covenant. If it's finding fault with it, it means although it is God's covenant and in that sense is perfect, yet it has within it this flaw that it doesn't enable people in and of itself to obey it. Deliberately, God, as it were, exposes but sin, he exposes what the heart of man is like. And so, in that relative sense, the writer can say, finding fault with it. But this new covenant that Christ has brought us into, if we are believers, he finds no fault with it at all. It's a perfect covenant because it guarantees obedience to its children. It guarantees holiness of heart. It guarantees persevering to the end. It guarantees love for God and love for our neighbor. And then next, this covenant is the same for all who are embraced by it. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is repeating what is found in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in substance in Ezekiel chapter 36. And by this time, of course, there was no Israel. The northern kingdom had been demolished by the Assyrians, deported. It was just the house of Judah. But that house of Israel and house of Judah takes us back to the disruption in the days of Solomon and the complete division of the kingdom and wickedness. In Baal worship in the north and then in the south, a very compromising attitude to idolatry, eventually complete idolatry in the days of Jeremiah, a nation fragmented, a nation at war with itself. A nation not united and yet here God is saying in this new covenant I'm going to unite all its beneficiaries. Everyone who's blessed by it, they will be in union one with another. The one body of Jesus Christ. And it's the same for everyone. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female. It's the same basis Of repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ, enabling us to lay hold upon the promises of God in Jesus Christ, which he purchased for us with his own blood. It's the same for everyone. It's a better covenant in that sense. And then look at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That is not the tone of the Old Covenant. The tone of the Old Covenant is this. You will be blessed if you keep it. Blessed is everyone who keeps the law in all respects. But if you don't do it, as Deuteronomy makes clear, curse, you're cursed in every sense. You're under God's curse. You're under his wrath, the least sin. But he says here, the whole tone is so different. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Why is that? Because, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, we are justified by faith alone. We're justified by Christ and what he has done for us. His righteousness is imputed to us and our sins are imputed to him. And so God wipes the slate completely clean and he doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't hold them against us. And then it is an everlasting covenant. Verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Here is a word that one would never dare use in, if it wasn't here in Holy Scripture would never dare use of a covenant that God himself designed the old covenant and yet God says here it's actually geriatric it's decaying it's waxing old it's dead on its feet ready to vanish away and vanish away it did by AD 70 in every respect the temple all the sacrifices of the temple all the ritual every remnant as it were done away with and essentially done away with by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and so this covenant remains now we do think very well of those Jews who are pious who have traditional values and who in some sense value the Old Testament scriptures but I tell you this Whatever it is they are worshipping, whatever it is that they are clinging to, it's been done away with. It's gone. And what's been left with is the new covenant in Christ Jesus. In his blood and in his broken body. That's what's left with. The rest is gone, the rest is vanished away. They shall not teach every man his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. It's certainly a better covenant and secondly it's founded on better promises better promises in itself it is the fulfilment of God's own promises that he was going to do something new as he deliberately designed the law as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ as he finding fault in that old covenant in order to show the sinfulness of the human heart and the sinfulness of sin, he had devised a covenant of grace that would bring us into union with himself, and he himself would bear the obligations of that. And so right through the scriptures in different ways, at different points, there are indications that he's going to do something far better and far more glorious and far more permanent. And these indications and these promises, they kind of rise up above the waves at certain points. And uh, here's one example in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. I'm just reading to you what the writer to the Hebrews has quoted verbatim. But the whole of this context, Jeremiah chapter 30 to 33, is about what God is going to do in and with and for his people. So you have Jeremiah saying something like this, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O Virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and thou shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. There's going to be gladness, there's going to be joy because there's just a whole new basis of relationship with God. Or well, listen what, to what Isaiah says in chapter 2 of his prophecy, at the beginning of the prophecy. It's essentially the same covenant. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God. They're flowing unto it. They're not terrified and running away from it, as in the days of Moses, trembling. And begging Moses to shut the voice down and to shut the trumpet down. But they're flowing unto it. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. Inward obedience. Love for God. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many peoples. And they shall beat their saws into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. It's the same for all, the people unified in Christ and in this new covenant. Now, we realize that in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 2, he speaks about the, the deeds of the law, the work of the law, as he puts it, being written upon the hearts of the Gentiles, those who have not the law by nature, Or have not the law of Moses, and therefore haven't heard the Ten Commandments, I should say. Not by nature, but they haven't heard the written law. But he talks about them having a law written on their hearts, or the work of the law, I should say. So that their conscience tells them if they're doing right or wrong. But friends, what we are reading about in the New Covenant is far more than that. It's far more than just the echo of, you shouldn't do this, you should do that. You shouldn't steal, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't hate. It's far more than just an echo of that. This is an inward dynamic. This is God writing his law upon the heart. This is what Paul is expounding in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3 as he speaks about the gospel preacher being a minister of this new covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit. He ministers the Spirit. So as you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and as you believe that gospel, as you come to Christ, God is actually making your heart like the tablet of the Ten Commandments. He's writing it there upon your inward man so that you can say, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Now that's a far cry different from just being feeling guilty when you know you've done wrong. It's a ministration of glory and a blessing and of righteousness there right in the heart. It's better promises than the old covenant. And it's therefore the result of the new birth. Effectively that's the start of it all. That's the start of it all when we're born again of the spirit, and that we're regenerated. We're made alive in Christ. We're given a new nature. The old man and everything about him is now crucified with Christ. And we have entered into a completely different realm. You've been washed with the washing of regeneration and renewed with the Holy Spirit, which is shed upon you abundantly. And now you see, you are in Christ. And as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 8, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's what's happened in you. The, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That's it, that's the new covenant as you walk according to the Spirit, as you heed his precious word and love his word and love what's written in his word and of his law, you are fulfilling the righteousness of the law. And you're doing that which has been written upon your hearts. Am I describing you? Or is your spiritual experience more like One of those Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, trembling at the thought of the nearness of God, trembling at the thought of dying, trembling at the thought of getting the virus and going into eternity, because you know that deep down you don't know God. Is that where you are? My dear friend, there's a new covenant here, there's a better covenant and it's established on better promises. The promises are not, it's all down to you and to you doing this and you doing that. But the promise is it's all down to Christ and what he has done for sinners. And that leads us briefly to the third point. A better covenant, better promises, because it's established through a better mediator. The mediator of a better Covenant. The first mediator was Moses, a man of God, but a sinner also, needing himself to be forgiven. But this mediator is a better mediator, and this is, as it were, the very deepest foundation layer of the whole matter of this new covenant. Perhaps during this week some of you have seen the result of that awful earthquake in Turkey and Greece. And maybe you saw that block of flats shaking if you saw the video of it. And then it just crumbled down. That was terrible, wasn't it? Well, here's, here is a covenant that whatever shakes, whatever vibrates and shakes and is, is unstable, this covenant is not Going to fall down, it's not going to collapse because it's established at its deepest layer upon this mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the guarantor of the covenant. And it's through him all this blessing comes to us. And the writer is making another point here. We haven't really time to develop this, but just notice that he's saying that Moses, in verse 5, Moses administered. A covenant that was really just shadows or types of heavenly things. Or example. These words mean illustrations, anticipations, picture language, if you like, of what was going to come. But it's Jesus himself who is the antitype. And he describes the antitype as the heavenly things. So Moses is the shadow, Moses is the anticipation, the picture. But the reality, the heavenly things, is found in the ministry of Christ. In his high priestly ministry. In his ministry as a mediator. In the ministry of one who is the leader of his people, the apostle of his people. It's a more excellent ministry because it brings us to God himself. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And right there at the foundation is this better mediator. What do we learn about this mediator in this chapter? First see we learn something about his posture. He's seated. He's set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens because he's completed his work. There's nothing more for him to do To bring this covenant right into your heart, to cleanse you and to make you acceptable to God. Nothing more for Him to do. He's done this work. He's he's merited the repentance and the faith which you must exercise and have exercised if you're a Christian. His posture is seated. What is His purpose to fulfill? To fulfill what the Old Testament anticipates. That is to make us the people of God. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And what is his place? His place is in heaven itself. Set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's where your saviour and your mediator is this day. Whatever's going on on earth Christ is there, secure in heaven for you. He's ascended up on high on your behalf. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on your behalf. He's in the very reality, the heavenly things on your behalf. People think this earth is the reality. No, this is just the shadow. It's heaven itself which is the reality. It's heaven itself which is the great antitype, the great fulfillment But we've yet to plumb the depths of that, have we not, brothers and sisters? Do you know God personally? Are you under this better covenant? It's a covenant of grace and mercy which God gives to sinners like you and me as we turn to him and as we trust him through Jesus Christ.